0: Well, as you guys get your coffee and the, uh, the goodies, go ahead and take your seat. I know this uh, is not where Grace and Grant is usually taught from, and this is not my, my shameless attempt at some sort of self-promotion. Uh, we can't find the lapel mic, and so if you're going to hear me and me not have to hold a microphone the whole time, this was the easiest option. So, hey. Anyway, continuing on. <laughs> well, let me first go to the psalm. Psalm 28 is where we'll be today, and then I'll pray for us after we've heard from the Lord. So Psalm 28. observing that this, this pulpit uh, clock is strategically behind. This is probably Pastor Frill's design. Don't worry, i have taken note of what time it really is. All right, so Psalm 28, a short psalm of nine verses, a psalm of David. To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Do not be deaf to me, for if you are silent to me, I will become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary. Do not drag me away with the wicked and with those who work iniquity, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Requite them according to their work and according to the evil of their practices. Requite them according to the deeds of their hands repay them their recompense. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord, nor the deeds of his hands, he will tear them down and not build them up. And then notice, here's a major shift, verse 6, blessed be the Lord, because he has heard the voice of my supplication. The Lord is my strength and my shield, my heart trusts in him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart exalts, and with my song I shall thank him. The Lord is their strength, and he is a saving defense to his anointed. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd also and carry them forever. So the psalm begins with David recounting his plea for help in verses 1 through 5. How first in the first two verses, he, he just prays, Lord, hear me. And then in verses 3 through 5, we find the content of his request, um, that that he wouldn't perish along with the wicked, but that the Lord would repay the wicked what they deserve, that they would receive the punishment they deserve. And then in verses 6 and 7, it seems David's received a response. Notice the similarity there. Verse 6, because he has heard the voice of my supplication, mirrors closely what we saw in verse 2 hear the voice of my supplications. So we we see here here now he's received a response of some sort, and he's now assured that what he's requested has been provided. And so he thanks the Lord with this psalm for having given that answer to his prayer. So, before we get to verses 8 and 9, if we ask, what's the purpose of the psalm? What effect was hoped to be had through it in the people of israel it seems it was to function as a pattern of the faithful calling to the lord in their distress and being delivered that's what david does he reports how he did that and how the lord delivered him and not so much as a promise that the lord will always answer as requested but a pattern that encourages us to trust him and therefore to direct our pleas to him because he is a god who responds to the pleas of his servants. But then verses 8 and 9 make this other transition. Notice, first of all, that David makes mention of the nation of Israel as a whole when he says the Lord is their strength. That's the nation, seems to be indicated by verse 9, save your people. So first he moves from himself to now a plea for the nation as a whole. Secondly, we notice that he now refers to himself um, in the third person, where he says he is a saving defense to his anointed. But up to this point, he's been referring to himself in the first person. I, me, that kind of thing. And so this this transition is also seen in verse 9, where we see more requests directed to the Lord. Save your people. Bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd. Carry them forever. So having recounted this pattern of David in the beginning of the psalm, looking to the Lord... For personal deliverance and receiving that deliverance from the Lord, he now moves outward to make a request for the nation as a whole, and the psalm ends on this note of request for the nation as a whole, without recording any praise for an answer to that request. So it seems that we see this pattern where David says, "I was in this personal distress. I I pleaded with the Lord for deliverance, and He delivered me." So you yeah, have re- request response another request that's not paired up with the response for the nation but the pattern has taught us to expect what that the lord's going to answer he's going to care for his people and so the nation's left with this pattern of trusting the lord and even seeing david himself praying for the nation as a whole and looking to him for the deliverance they need and so since the purpose of the psalm was to teach the people of God to trust the Lord for the help they need by putting before them this encouraging pattern, the people of God praying to the Lord, Him responding with the help they need, then let us also look to the Lord for help and put our trust in Him for bringing about the, the deliverance we need, whatever it might be. That we'd be encouraged to do that. I was actually reading this and just reminded of it's, very elementary but just a pattern in a way I've been reproved I've even noted with several of the men uh, here that on Wednesdays, you guys heard us mention this a couple times recently, on Wednesday midday we get together, The people who serve in various shepherding capacities just to pray for the congregation name by name and a couple of us have just observed <laughs> that it's like shortly after you pray for certain people for specific things like what do you know you're hearing reports about how things are changing in that person's life And it's almost tempting to think like, oh, well, that's interesting. You know, surely coincidental, but interesting. Well, no, it's not coincidental. (laughs) That's what you prayed for. And, of course, the Lord answered it. But it's a reproof to think how we can be surprised sometimes about, you know, there's a pattern of, oh, I prayed for this, and the Lord answered. I prayed, and the Lord answered. But, no, it's not surprising. Why are we surprised? And so I think it's a similar sort of thing. Just as my heart was encouraged to observe that, we're to be encouraged by observing the way the Lord's done that in David's life. It compels us to keep coming back to Him with our needs. All right, let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be men who don't forget not only what we're supposed to do, but what we have the privilege of doing—coming to you and bringing our requests. May we be men who are characterized by prayer, and not just prayer, but a prayer that comes in confidence that you are a God who hears and answers. And so I pray, Lord, that even as we move on now to, to look at this lesson from grace and Granite, that you would, we, we pray that you would help us to understand these things this morning, to understand your word better, understand what you expect of us, and that we would become more mature and that the body would become more mature as the men of the church become more mature. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So take your... Take your books here, Grace and Green, and go toward the back. We're in series 13, which begins on page 241. Series 13, beginning on page 241. And we are in week two of four that we'll spend in study one. So I think there's two studies in series 13, and we're going to spend four weeks in study one, and we're starting just week two here of this study. And as you guys will remember from last week, or some of you may not have been here last week, so we'll just briefly review, this study is looking at three non-negotiable realities that will be present in any true church. Three non-negotiable realities that will be present in any true church. And these are, you can see them there on page 242, number one, God's voice is the only one heard in the church. Number two, qualified men lead the church. And number three, kingdom membership is manifested in church membership. Now, the man who wrote this, John Anderson, has been very intentional in wording those, but he's also aware that that can be kind of cumbersome. So he's given us a shorter version just below that. Number one, preaching of the word. Number two, qualified leadership. Number three, church discipline. That's essentially what he means by each of those longer three. And so last week, we looked at sort of an introduction to these. What, what do we mean by non-negotiable realities? What's the difference between uh, you know, a, a non-negotiable reality for a true church— to distinguish it from a false church versus marks that would be characteristic of a healthy church, because obviously there's a difference between just saying true church and false church, and on the other hand, within true church is distinguishing measures of health. So what we're saying here is not saying this is all that is needed for a healthy church, but things that must be there for a church to be a true church. You remember we also talked a bit about um, contextualization, a word that can be used in a a category that can be used helpfully or unhelpfully it can be used unhelpfully to kind of conform the gospel to a culture and to basically make it palatable to unregenerate unconverted people so that they they will be interested in Jesus without having to actually be converted that's unhelpful on the other hand contextualization can look like making sure that the scripture is fully applied within a particular context, that its full weight is felt, and people aren't left all on their own to make connections of application, but that we're helping them do that, or or even our own life, we're doing that ourselves. In many ways, contextualization could just be understood as application. And so we just discussed the fact that when it comes to listing non-negotiable realities and Jonathan was helpful with this, we, we could list a long catalog of everything that must be present in a true church, and yet that would, one, be laborious, and number two, unnecessary, because a lot of those things aren't necessarily being challenged in our present context by various churches. And so our task is to put the emphasis, focus on what are those areas that are being challenged, that are often being missed, and, and to draw attention to those things as what we should be looking for in a true church. And you'll remember just more broadly that while we, we introduced this with kind of the, the category of a neighbor coming to you and saying, should I stay in my current church, my present church, or should I look for another one? Um, obviously, we aren't simply trying to equip you to answer that question from your neighbor, whether it comes or not, but to help you think more biblically about what, what should be in a church, whether that's because a job transfer takes you somewhere else and we want to make sure you land in a healthy church, Um, Or you are talking to co-workers Uh, There are a lot of people thinking about things like this But overall it's going to be helpful for you to know What are some of these marks that are absolutely essential Non-negotiables for a true church So today we're going to spend some time just looking at that first one God's voice is the only one heard in the church Or stated more simply The preaching of the word So I want to start by Asking why. Why is this a non negotiable reality? Let me give us two answers. I'm sure we can give more, but I'll just break it down generally to two answers. Number one, Christ is the head of the church, He's the one who leads and governs the church. And to be the head means to be in authority, to be the one in charge. After all, It's his body, right? He's the head of the body. He's the one who is in charge over the body. It does what he tells it to do, just like the metaphor suggests. Not only does he possess authority over the church simply by his nature, being the Son of God, but also because of what he has done. He's purchased every true believer by his blood. He's the head of the church. And so it's the responsibility of Christ's spokesmen, his under-shepherds, the pastors of the church, to ensure that when they speak, they aren't wielding their own authority, but they're only kind of mediating his authority. And how does that happen? By ensuring that they aren't communicating their own message, but his message. I don't know exactly what the statistics would be. You guys probably know better than I would, but... You think about the the White House press room, I would guess that it's probably not the president who spends the most time behind that podium, but his press secretary, who spends the most time delivering things. And yet, no one ever sits back and scratches their head, wait, when did we elect this lady? Because she would be quickly removed if she was speaking whatever she wanted. The assumption is that even though she may go off script sometimes, she's always aiming to say exactly what the president would think. It's at least what we assume is, is happening and assume that she wouldn't be there much longer if she regularly went off script. Um, but I think that's a helpful example. What, what authority does she possess? Well, on the one hand, not really any. And yet, whenever she steps through those doors and comes up to the podium, the, the world's watching, right? The media's got the cameras on and they're listening and the most important people are there to ask questions and to... Um, Make sure we understand what's what's happening. So there's this importance, but she doesn't actually have any authority. She's simply mediating the authority of the president. And so it's necessary that God's voice be the only one heard in the church because it's his church. And that's exactly what preachers are doing. Whenever we speak, whenever there's some message coming forward, it needs to be the message of God that we're communicating. And if the leadership of a church convey their own message rather than that of the head. They're essentially saying, we're going to call the shots for the body and severing the head from the body. And at that point, it ceases to really be the body of Christ. Unless Christ's voice is the one being heard, the body isn't going to be the body of Christ. So first reason why this is a non-negotiable reality is that Christ is the head of the church. He's the one who must lead and govern the church. The second one is that the voice of God is the only one that can nourish the church for its growth and maturation. The voice of God is the only one that can nourish the church for its growth and maturation. We can think about this kind of from two angles. Number one, conversion. The word of God is necessary for conversion. It's by the word of God that the Spirit gives life to dead souls so that they might respond to the gospel in faith and repentance. Without the Word of God, no one's converted. Without converted persons, there is no church. So there's no church unless there is the Word of God, unless Christ's voice is heard. So it should be quite obvious that this is a non-negotiable reality for a true church, for without the Word, there are no Christians. And also, beyond just conversion, the Word of God is necessary for growth and maturation of those believers. And so again, These believers aren't going to be growing, aren't being matured, basically aren't having a church, where a church is supposed to be, unless the word of God is there. So those are two reasons why it's so necessary. Now let's consider, what does it mean for God's voice to be the only one heard in the church? We've seen why it's so necessary, why that's a non-negotiable reality. Now let's just explore a bit more, what does that mean? The crucial issue here is that the teaching, the content of the teaching— In the church, be biblical. And at this point, when I say be biblical, I'm not distinguishing between styles of preaching. Like, don't hear biblical means expository as opposed to topical. No, both of those can be biblical. They can be drawing from scripture. So I'm not distinguishing between styles, just content. The content must be biblical. That's the crucial issue for God's voice to be the voice heard in the church. So what do we mean by biblical? Well, I think we could break it down to two things. One, in terms of authority. The content of the teaching is consistent with the Bible. The Bible's the authority. It's what what tests everything that's said. Something true or not, it doesn't matter what people say. It doesn't matter what science says. What matters is what the Bible says. It's the authority. But we can go a step further and say that by teaching being biblical, not only must it be consistent with the Bible— Respecting the authority of the Bible, but also it must be this the, the Bible must be the source for the content of the teaching And that goes beyond that first in this way. There are plenty of things that don't contradict the Bible But maybe generally irrelevant for the church um, The engineering of suspension bridges all of the physics behind that could be entirely compatible with everything taught in the scriptures, and therefore we could teach all about the engineering of suspension bridges and not say anything that contradicts the Bible. There's no problem, right? No error. The problem is irrelevance. Sorry, Rich. The problem is irrelevance. (laughs) And that's (laughs) even—obviously, that's hyperbole, because sometimes you have to drive on a suspension bridge to get to church, right? (laughs) But the point is, that's not what's necessary for the building up of the church. So the source piece is, is absolutely vital. Um, rather than squandering time with all kinds of things that aren't vital, we need to look to the scriptures to find out what is it that the church needs. You might think of the analogy of a mother with a baby. And every time it comes to mealtime, she sits down at the table, puts the baby in the high chair, and pulls out her phone and goes to YouTube, and they together watch an episode of a cartoon. And then cartoon episode's over, she puts the phone away, pulls the baby out of the high chair, and they go on their way, content that they've observed the mealtime, and she hasn't done anything that's harmful to the baby. The problem is she's taken that time, and rather than giving the baby what it needs during that time, given it something that's generally irrelevant for it and not necessary, and that is harmful through neglect. So when we're preaching things that maybe aren't necessarily even contradictory, but that aren't what the Lord has said is what the church needs for its own health and maturity, there is neglect there. And the church won't be growing. The church will die. So let's just think for a moment. We're talking about the source of teaching in the church must be biblical if that's to be a true church. But Let's think about what are the competitors? What are other options for sources from which we might Derive the content of teaching. You no, know, reason, common sense, would be an obvious, easy one. Experience, whether personal experience or at a more macro level, you know, lessons from history, um, philosophy, and really <laughs> these things aren't any different. People who perceive themselves to be more intellectual would refer to it as philosophy, and they'd refer to rationalism and empiricism. The everyday person just says common sense and experience, right? <laughs> it's really the same things we're appealing to. It's just different levels of society. People use basic everyday terms or more technical terms. But the point is, other ways of knowing besides the word of God are common things we revert back to and that we're tempted often to use as the source of our teaching. Um, one that depends upon both experience and rationalism, reason that's kind of a highly specialized discipline and is very common as being a, a source that we're explicitly drawing on, I shouldn't say we, that people within evangelical church are explicitly drawing on for teaching, is psychology. Regularly what it looks like to, to deal with anger rather than the Lord's voice being heard on that, the world's voice is being heard, um, but through a respectable and apparently respectable um, form that we think of as pop psychology. So why must the Bible be the source for the teaching in the church? It's not simply that the scripture is true, and at that, there are other things that could be true, but the scriptures in that case would be unique because we can be sure they're true. But that's not all. It's, it's that the scriptures are necessary, and I already mentioned this briefly. But the scriptures, we often talk about them being sufficient. Yes, they're sufficient, but they're also necessary. You can't accomplish the things the church needs to accomplish without them. As I said, God creates a people for himself by his word, by the gospel, which cannot be learned from any of those other sources. You can share good common sense and experience with your neighbor all day long. And it can be good, good common sense, good experience, but he's never going to be saved by that. Without the special revelation provided to us in the Bible— no one can be saved and therefore there can be no church and for that reason the bible must be faithfully taught and it's a non-negotiable mark of a true church because it's necessary to the existence of a true church the bible is necessary to create a local church and if the bible's absent there categorically can't be a church notice on page 244 so you probably have to flip over one page from where i last pointed you page 244. You'll see um, it's the second full paragraph on that page that begins with the words in both of Paul's letters. um, I'm also going to read that. Both of Paul's letters to Timothy, his disciple in the ministry and pastor at Ephesus. He was told to maintain the reading and preaching of God's word. And then this is the sentence I want us to note. Failure at this point renders all other ministry, labor, praying, discipling, observing of ordinances, meetings of needs, and singing of songs, absolutely vain. Because through the word of God, the Lord's going to make all of those effective. There's all these other things we can get caught up in and spend so much time in, and yet if we aren't giving attention to the preaching of the word, a church just won't won't exist. It won't be a church. Now, when it comes to saying that the teaching, the content of the teaching, must be biblical. Let us remember, even what we heard on Sunday, that the devil is crafty. It's not often as obvious as it might seem. There are certainly plenty of extremely, obviously liberal churches, not true churches, so-called churches, that will just patently replace the Bible with something else, and it's not too easy to miss. But that's kind of the the far exception the real danger is those that are more subtle here i just try to think through what are some of those subtleties we'll look at a couple that john anderson gave us in this article but one of them is that preaching is simply sidelined or at least reduced to just a tiny bit of the service and that's a huge problem because that time of preaching and teaching is when christ's voice is heard in the church And so to begin sidelining that, reducing it, saying people aren't too interested in that, is effectively to begin to cut off the head from communicating with the church. And that's very common for all kinds of reasons these days. On the importance of teaching and preaching in the church, just consider a couple passages from uh, the letters to Timothy and Titus. So take your Bibles if you have them. And I I want to take just a couple minutes to look at some passages here because it is just almost ubiquitous that um, the teaching and preaching of the Word of God is just taking up less and less time in the life of the church. And I think we need to see that that's not simply a small matter of style, that that is cutting off the head from communicating with the body. So we're just looking at just these three books of Paul and just where he's consistently telling through all these passages that the need for teaching and preaching for Timothy, or when we get to Titus, for Titus to communicate truth to the church, the kind of thing that happens in preaching and teaching. We're just going to walk through these. So 1 Timothy 1, look at verse 3. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct... There's teaching and preaching, and it's not just any kind of flowery teaching. He's having to go after error, instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction, more teaching and preaching, is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith For some men straying from these things have turned aside a fruitless discussion. Go on down to chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. And here he's giving the qualifications for anyone who's going to be really a leader in a local church, going to be an elder, an overseer, a pastor. And basically he focuses pretty much entirely on character, but there's one necessary skill that's required, And you'll see that at the end of verse 2. So chapter 3, verse 2. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. So the one qualification for elders that's in that area of skill or ability um, is being able to teach. Clearly, teaching and preaching must be central to what it means for the leadership of a church to lead the church. Uh, continue on to chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. Take a look at verse 11. This is a paragraph that Pastor Farrell has had us in the past two sermons of his. Prescribe and teach these things. What he's been saying. If we're teaching and preaching. Look down at verse 13. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture to exhortation and teaching. And then down to verse 16. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Flip on over to chapter 5, verse 17, where Paul writes, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. Now I'm going to note what comes second, but just note here, without going into the argument, that based upon what follows and the way that this word for honor was understood, this seems to mean. Um, to be remunerated, to, to receive some sort of compensation to free them up from daily work so they can give more time to shepherding. So the elders who rule well, let me just I'm asking you to assume this here, to trust me here substitute here, they are to be supported for their work. And then he says specifically which ones which are those ones who rule well and are to be supported by the church? Specifically those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So There are numerous elders. Some of them will be supported, according to Paul here. And those ones who are supported will be the ones who work hard at preaching and teaching. Clearly, it's an important task within the work of an elder. Uh, Go ahead to the end of 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verse 2. And it will be at the very end here. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are, are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. And then go ahead and flip on over to 2 Timothy. Chapter 2. And Near the end of chapter 2, you'll see this. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Let me just give a brief comment on this. One common way for Christ's authority over his church and for his voice not to be heard in the church is to allow a concern that's initially rightly directed to be kind to all to be patient to basically allow a certain i'll explain this a certain pluralism to run amok in the church where basically people will say other things and we don't want to say that's wrong that's wrong there's one truth so we let let those things stand no okay well i i probably see it more this way and you see it that way okay we'll we'll allow those to stand and now which one is what christ says Christ has been effectively cut off from functioning as the head of his church when that happens, and that concern to not be quarrelsome, to be patient, to have gentleness, is biblical. The problem is this diabolical lie that says that that's distinct and incompatible with things like correcting those who are in opposition. So in a world where that's just not desired coming to people who teach error and correcting them is seen as being one of the greatest offenses you could you could do to someone i just want to encourage us as men who aren't the elders of this church but to support our pastors in doing that kind of thing and to expect that from a local church that there will be yes without being quarrelsome with kindness with gentleness with patience but nonetheless correcting both for the purity of the church, but also, as this passage says, that being corrected, they might see the error of their ways and repent, in turn, and be saved. You know, really practically, a lot of you are in small groups. Small group leaders have a difficult time with this because the very context is one that sort of encourages kind of a multiplicity of perspectives, right? Different people are being asked to weigh in, and that small group leader has to make sure that Christ's voice, the right understanding of that passage, is all that's allowed to stand without embarrassing people, right? Um, so, you keep that in mind as you're even in that context. In a, in a faithful church, there will be a, a good small group leader, a faithful small group leader will be coming back and saying, thank you for sharing that, but look at, look at this text. I think it's probably better that we understand it this way, and that's not helpful. That's not what the scriptures teach. And we need to be quick to say, Thank you for doing that, not why do you shame me like that? But no, thank you for pointing us back to the scriptures. Uh, going down to Second Timothy chapter four, verse one. Remember we're just looking at how central teaching and preaching is. I solemnly charge you, I mean look at the solemnity with which Paul begins this charge. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of christ jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom what does he charge timothy preach the word be ready in season and out of season and reprove rebuke exhort with great patience and instruction for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine but wanting to have their ears tickled they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires just again the the priority of teaching and preaching In Titus, look at chapter 1, verse 9. This is again similar to what we've already seen in 1 Timothy chapter 3. More instructions about the qualifications for men who would serve in leadership in the church in the role of an elder. And Paul writes that they should, continuing his list, hold fast to the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that they will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict Again, the importance of clear, authoritative preaching and teaching. Titus chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. More teaching and preaching. Look at the end of chapter 2 of Titus. Verse 15. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers and to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. The emphasis here, what I'm drawing out, is just the reminding, right? Teaching and preaching. And then notice, finally, um, verse 8 of chapter 3. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. And I'm sure we could find other ones. I just kind of went through those three letters and just said, what are some of the most obvious instructions to Timothy and Titus about the importance of them teaching and preaching the scriptures? And so I draw those out for you just because that is a common way that I think churches are failing to make Christ's voice the only one heard. Not necessarily by substituting with something that's overtly heretical, but by simply sidelining it with various reasons. People don't aren't interested in that. People don't want to listen. People are interested in dialogue. Now, dialogue can be good, like in a small group. There are certain dangers to that, but it can be good as long as the point is to help people understand what Christ has said. And then look on page 245. Page 245, and John here has given us a list in italics there beginning at the very top of page 245 of some other ways that Satan can be deceptive And subtly, something else is replacing what God has said, and Christ is being cut off as being head of his church. First, he says that the speakers, the preachers, the leaders, cast doubt on what God has said. And here he points to Genesis Um, 3-1. Has the Lord really said? Another one is that they deny what God said. And there he points to Genesis 3-4. Basically, Satan just completely contradicts what God has said. A third one, they affirm and quote God's word, but supply another meaning. This one can often be deceptive because we could we could refer to it as like springboard preaching. The pastor opens the Bible and takes that text, reads it, and you think, great, he's going to preach the Bible. But then he uses that text simply to spring off to whatever it is he wants to say. And if we aren't attentive in saying, well, is what he's saying actually connected to the text? We can be deceived into thinking that is biblical when really... Uh, What he's saying is just what he wants to say. Continuing on with that list, they create their own message and then say, thus says the Lord. Or here he's appealing to a text from Amos. Uh, They call the biblical message the opinion of the preacher and then contradict it with their own opinion. So rather than really engaging with what that person's saying, is it really what the text says? They simply dismiss it. That's just his opinion but here's what you should think. And we need to have the the wisdom to say, well, no, hold on, what does the text say? Don't just dismiss him and tell me I should listen to you. The question is, what do the scriptures say? The next one John gives us here on that page is that they distract from God's word by focusing on what is marginal, academic, and fruitless. Meaning, they might even be looking at the text, talking all about it, but they aren't getting across the main point, the purpose of the text, They're getting lost in all kinds of minutia, and in the midst of that, what is actually the proposition of the text, what God is communicating, his message, isn't heard. Next, they affirm parts of sound doctrine with their lips, but deny holiness with their life. And then finally, they twist and pervert the meaning of scripture from its original intent. So just some more ways that we need to be cautious about what might appear to be God's voice being heard in the church when it really is something else. So, having talked just generally about what does it mean for the teaching in the church to be biblical as a necessary mark, I just want to take that one step further. We've talked so far about that being just being baseline biblical, being necessary for it to be a true church, for a church to exist, But then we also said that if we go beyond that, there are degrees of health. So what does it look like for that teaching and preaching to be done in such a way that it contributes to the greatest measure of health in a church? Now, I just want to put this kind of under the category of ways of teaching the Bible. And I'm just going to give two basic forms that biblical preaching might take. First would be expositional, and the second one would be topical. And uh, you could possibly say others— But I think generally, we define those two broadly, they will encapture, I think, most all preaching. So by expositional, I have in mind things like, you know, everything from the typical, detailed, verse-by-verse preaching, like what Pastor Farrell usually does, or even things that are a bit of a more high-level overview, like two weeks ago when I preached on Job. The point, though, is that we're still starting with the text, and we're explaining the text, and then applying the text whether you get through one verse or whether you get through 42 chapters, you're seeking to know what God has said and help people to walk in what he has said. So the key components, I would say, people will often give long lists, this is my very simple list, the key components of an expositional sermon or of expositional study would be, number one, two things. Number one, it explains the text, and number two, it applies the text. Explain the text, apply the text. Those are the things that need to be there. So now, moving on to another way the Bible can be faithfully taught would be topical. First, expositional. Secondly, topical. And the key components of faithful topical preaching would be these. It should focus attention on several biblical texts chosen for their relevance to a particular topic. So there's a particular topic of concern. You find certain biblical texts that are relevant to that topic, and it focuses its attention on those texts understanding what they contribute. It also needs to include fairly and carefully explaining those texts with a concern for their context and the author's intention. And then it applies the biblically informed understanding of the topic. Having studied those passages that all relate to a particular topic and now understanding what God says on that topic, it then goes ahead and applies what we've heard God says on that topic. So the primary distinction between faithful topical preaching and expositional preaching is that the former topical starts with a topic then goes to multiple texts that address that topic and basically does many expositions of that of those texts and then pulls it all together whereas the latter the expositional starts with a biblical text explains what's there and then applies it and we do both of these we we often put forward, rightly so, expository preaching, but we do topical preaching here. I mean, think about our Sunday nights, fundamentals of the faith. We're just working through topics, trying to go to biblical texts and explain what those texts teach about various topics. Or Pastor Brody's trust in God, an important topic that clearly Scripture addresses. Or uh, what what Clay's going to be teaching soon, fear of man and fear of God. These are all faithful ways, as long as what we're doing is going to Scripture and hearing God's voice on those topics and then seeking to apply them faithful ways to study and teach and to shepherd the church with the word of God so here are just some reflections on these two kinds of teaching first of all, both are important both kinds of teaching are important if we consistently though, start with our own questions or concerns and go to the Bible which, which, which approach would that be? Starting with our own questions and concerns and then going to the Bible more of a topical approach, then we run the danger of these things. We can remain unaware of and unchanged in areas that may be important to the Bible, but that are not important in our own fallen minds. Meaning, we're starting with what we we perceive to be important, right? This is a topic that I think is important, so I'm going to go study it. Here's another topic I think is important, I'm going to go study it. Well, what happens when, as we come to Christ... Our priorities are distorted. They aren't biblical. And the things that we think are most important may not be the things God says are most important. So the things he says are most important, we're never going and studying those because we don't know they're most important. We're just focusing on things that we already perceive to be important. And when you do that, if that's a consistent, the consistent diet of your study or of the preaching in the church, it really is very difficult to receive the full counsel of God, isn't it? Another... You know, concern related to that one is that the Bible has to remake our worldview, deprioritizing things we thought were important in our fallen state, and prioritizing things we didn't value in our our fallen state. We've got to have categories created that we never had before. These are all worldview type things, and so we must not underestimate how much our lenses for viewing the world change with regeneration and then ongoingly need to be changing through instruction from the Bible. The issue is that our perception of reality because of our fallenness has become massively distorted. Think of like Romans 121. We became futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts were darkened. And we must have that distortion removed so we can begin to see reality for what it really is not through our distorted lenses. And expositional preaching, by starting with the text, is able to do this. Whereas topical preaching, or study, by starting with our questions, is not as effective at remaking our worldview and creating categories for us we don't already have. And therefore it leaves us vulnerable to and prone to making biblical content conform to the shape of our fallen worldview and thereby distorting it you know our worldview we're sort of bringing like a vessel um, a cookie cutter or something like that and then we've got this biblical content and we've got to fit it into the into our minds and it's like you know they say fitting a square peg in a round hole and so you're going to end up having to distort it in some way to get it to fit unless you're starting all over again and allowing the content to completely remake the the mold or the vessel so in many ways expositional preaching is like a game of jeopardy you come with a blank slate You receive an answer, and then you infer what questions you should have been asking. But that's something you you never would do. You never would be taught the questions you should be asking if you're always starting and prioritizing your own questions. So, topical preaching can be helpful because the Bible is not a systematically arranged textbook. It's a collection of documents given to the people of God at various points throughout salvation history for their instruction and their exhortation, and it's helpful... It's helpful to bring together all the texts that relate to a particular topic. See what what the Bible says on that topic. And if we give priority to expositional preaching and then supplement... Remember, despite what I've just said about the potential dangers of topical preaching, I think it's helpful and good. And if we then supplement with topical preaching, we get the best of both worlds. Our worldview and our categories are being consistently conformed to Scripture by the expositional preaching in our own personal expositional study, meaning inductively, starting with the text, for our, for our study. And then, when we approach a particular topic, we're in a better position to do that. We're much more likely to be asking appropriate questions when we come to that topic, or even which topics we think are going to be important. They're going to be informed by the Word. We also are now going to be able to better understand Scripture on its own terms, so we can faithfully interpret each of those texts that are contributing to our understanding of the topic. Um, Even when we haven't studied a particular book before. You know, it's easy if you've studied through a multitude of books, and you've understood those books on their own terms, and then you come to a particular topic, and the texts you need to go to are in those books you've already studied. We already kind of understand what they mean in their context. Now you're in a really good position. But even when you haven't studied the whole book in which one of these texts is located, Through consistent, kind of inductive Bible study, you've developed the skills you need to be able to understand that passage in its own context. You can probably begin to see that faithful topical preaching is actually much more difficult, contrary to what's often thought, than faithful expositional preaching because you basically have to do expositions of every one of those passages that are contributing to the topic. Let me give you some examples. Uh, Again, I'm just going to take this example because it's one I I recently did, preaching from Job. Um, I spent a good deal of time studying the book of Job, and that was a time-intensive study. Now imagine, instead, I wanted to address the topic of suffering and wanted to use Job. I would need to do all that same work in Job to know what Job says. But then, that would only be one part of my preparation. Maybe I would next go to James 1. James 1. And I would carefully study the book of James as a whole. And the place of chapter 1 in the book of James. Same thing with Romans. Now I'd go to Romans, understand the whole book of Romans, understand the place of chapter 5, which addresses things like suffering, in that book. Now I can properly draw what, what that text says about suffering and apply it to the topical study. Then I might go to 1 Peter chapter 1 and study, try to understand what's the purpose of 1 Peter. And then what role does chapter 1, which addresses suffering, play in that? And how can I faithfully draw lessons about suffering from that? So now I've studied three books to to prepare. Now that's going to be useful, though, to have kind of a topical explanation because it's drawing on more than just Job. Also, consider this. The point that I drew out two weeks ago, that Job's not primarily about suffering, but about the questions we have that God doesn't answer. It would be easy to pull out proof texts from Job even to try to attempt to explain the why of suffering. And draw, remember I said, the book doesn't teach us why of suffering. It actually tells us that's the wrong question. That we need to trust God rather than demanding he tell us why in our suffering. And yet if we aren't careful and don't study the book well, we could simply go to the book and begin trying to find answers to answer a question that the question the book itself is saying you shouldn't be asking. See how that could be dangerous if you don't? The whole point is not with topical preaching per se. It's just emphasizing the need for careful study. And when you now have to study multiple texts to prepare one sermon, it just increases the load significantly. How much better and more realistic to take on each one in an inductive, expositional manner, and then after working through them individually, maybe in separate sermons, pulling together the teaching about each Uh, the teaching from each about suffering and synthesizing all of that. At that point, you've done a faithful topical study, right? So I'm just drawing that out because I think the tendency is to think, oh, topical preaching is easier than expositional preaching. And I would actually say, if it's going to be good, faithful topical preaching, it's actually a lot more work that, that requires you've already done all of the inductive expositional work on each text. So, in summary, what is essential to a true church? What's this first essential? Christ's voice must be the only one heard in the church, right? Which stated more simply is what? Yeah. Preaching the word. Good. And within that, what is more likely to nurture and ongoingly nourish a healthy church? A consistent diet of expositional preaching supplemented by textually oriented topical preaching. That was a lot of content. Let me read that again. A consistent diet of expositional preaching supplemented by textually oriented topical preaching. I hope that's helpful. I think that probably even gives you some some better categories for why our elders do what they do. Um, almost pretty consistently on Sunday mornings, what we will find is an exposition, right? Inductively, starting with the text, explaining it. And that's, that's sort of the, the cornerstone of the way that our pastors shepherd us here, with that being the steady diet, hearing the word on its own terms. But then around that, they're supplementing it with other topical studies. that are helping us now to pull all of this together and, and synthesize it. So there's a a very strategic approach going on there that I think makes a lot of sense and is wise in how they're shepherding us. All right, do we have any questions about this first mark of a true church, this first non-negotiable reality? Go ahead, Julie. Yeah. Yeah. I think biggest one that comes to mind is just that the bible isn't sort of a systematic theology or a systematic practical guide it's a collection of documents written to specific occasional situations and so if we want to know what does god say about any particular topic um, it's, it is helpful i think and it's needful even to go to all of those and draw it together if someone asks me how must i be saved i can simply go to say romans 4 and tell them what that says I could go to Galatians, tell them what I find there, Ephesians 2, what I find there, but I think I'm going to serve them better if I can pull all of those together into kind of a, a helpful composite explanation of the gospel and be able to convey that in words that are easy for them to understand. Does that make sense? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think the primary benefit of expository preaching is that it confronts that very expectation that this doesn't seem like it's helpful, doesn't seem relevant. But we have to step back and say, wait a minute, God is the one who inspired this. So it is per se relevant, right? And so that's something I never would study on my own if I were simply going. Those are the types of the whole counsel of God I would be overlooking and neglecting if i didn't simply push myself to work through those texts is that making sense so i find myself there often i mean what do you do when you're when you're in the first whatever it is eight chapters of first chronicles it's like is that right eight eight nine chapters something like that of just genealogy after genealogy after genealogy um it's helpful to not just be able to skip over that but to say no why is this here what is the purpose of the books of Chronicles? What is the message being communicated? And how do these play a part in it? Because I want to make sure I understand what God inspired the author of Chronicles to communicate. <laughs> so this is where, like I'm saying, exposition could look more like what I did with Job, where you're pulling up at a higher level. So yeah, I, <laughs> I would not be spending weeks or months or years going through those first couple chapters in 1 Chronicles. That would probably be one sermon on all of that, just trying to help you see how that's setting up the book, where it's taken, what the author's intending to do with that. Yeah, that's a really good question, Julian. Do you have any follow-up question? Yeah. 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 I think not everything that goes by the title, the designation exposition, is helpful. And sometimes expository preaching can lose, as we say, the forest for the trees, right? Because they just get so caught up in individual things. And you can eventually actually become what I sometimes call index preaching, where it's almost like you take your favorite systematic theology and you just kinda of go through the index. Okay, now I'm coming to this next verse. Well, what are the relevant portions of my systematic theology that are addressed, you know, regular where this verse is regularly cited? Now I'm gonna teach that topic now. So I just take each verse to launch out into a topic that seems tangentially related that I think is important. That'd be another dangerous way that appears to be expository but really isn't. Yeah, there are a lot of such dangers. But don't, when you hear me say there are a lot of such dangers, don't think, oh, this seems like it's overwhelming to try to discern this. No, think all I've got to do is simply ask, is that what the author's saying? If I read it in the context, is that what he's saying here? And to the extent that we're going beyond what that text says, then we don't have the support of that text. Now, sometimes a pastor might say, hey, I understand what this is saying, and if you read this Isolated, you might misunderstand it, or it may cause some confusion. So let me take a pastor a moment, kind of to step aside pastorally and take you to another verse that will be important to help you understand how to apply this. Like that's just being responsible, right? Recognizing where people are prone to misunderstand it. But the key is he's still grounding you in another text, right? That wherever he's telling you isn't just him saying, "Don't take this too seriously," but no, actually, help see that we need to we need to bring together multiple texts to understand this fully from God's perspective. Yep. Go ahead, Bobby. Yeah. That's a good question. I probably wouldn't be too dogmatic on that. I think there could be extremes. I think there could be there could be a maybe a superficial desire to just want to avoid any reference to oneself because that's just categorically considered to be most humble and maybe could cut off the people from being able to to see what it looks like in your own life because it is helpful. There's a dimension which is helpful for people to see how you're applying the scriptures, right? How that's working on you, how you yourself do stumble in sin. Um, and yet there could also be another side where if you aren't careful, the narcissist within you could sort of have you in every illustration, right? And not just you in every illustration, but you as the hero of every illustration. So I wouldn't say just categorically I would give any particular answer that it's good or bad. I would just say there needs to be just wisdom more broadly. Go ahead. excellent. Yep. In fact, whenever you we're talking kind of about preaching here, but don't don't be don't slide into just thinking, well, I don't preach, so what does this matter to me? No, it matters to you because you're listening to sermons. You need to know what's faithful. But also you're doing the same essential thing. If preaching is simply explaining and applying the text, then when you sit down at your breakfast table and talk to your wife and tell her about what you learned this morning in your, your devotions and how it's how you're applying it to your life, you're simply doing that very thing. Maybe without the refinement and all, but that's essentially what you're doing. So it's helpful for us to think about, if I'm going to illustrate this for my life, what am I doing? And be clear about how that's functioning. It's not simply functioning to give further support or credibility to what the Word of God says. Like, yeah, I know the Word of God says it, but you can be sure of this because I experience it. It's true. No, it's, you're going to be clear that, no, it's, I'm just helping you see what it looks like in practice. It's one thing to see this truth in the biblical world, now let me help you see what it looks like being fleshed out in our present familiar world yeah good good so bottom line first mark of a true church is that the word of god needs to be heard the voice of god and we spent some time thinking about style the differences between topical but that's sort of secondary a nice opportunity to think about how that should work out for the greatest health in the body that is also what we're concerned about here but the bottom line is the word of God must be heard. All right, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We've talked a whole lot about the importance of it. May we be men who walk in that, that truth not by giving much attention to your word when it comes to our own lives. May we not spend lots of time uh, reading the newspaper or the, the news webpage as it often is these days or anything else history books all kinds of things that we might enjoy and yet just relatively neglect your word may we not even be men who who just live on minimalism just content with 15 minutes of reading our bible per day and happy to check that off as soon as the clock hits 15 minutes and move on may we be men who know deeply that we desperately need your revelation to us and who give ourselves to it when there's free time when there are questions May we do that personally. May we do that in our families. May we be men who know that our families desperately need the Word of God, and and we're serious about guarding the time that we've set aside to be able to spend with our families and talk about truth and point them to the scriptures. When our wives and children have questions, may we be quick to, to not just sit around the table and talk and talk and talk while the Bible sits over there on the shelf, but quick to say, ah, let me grab the Bible first and open it up in front of us and see what you've said about these things. Um, Lord, I know that can be intimidating for us. I am I, I can sympathize with that. May we be men who grow in our ability to handle the Word of God and to apply the Word of God so we can do that with confidence. And men who aren't just able to do it with some psychological confidence but with the credibility of having lives that clearly evidence, digging into your Word and living it out. And Lord, as we then think more, more about the church level may we be men who are discerning men who continue to encourage our pastors to give us the very thing they are and the very thing we need in a world where people are uh, complaining about too much teaching too much preaching too much attention to an ancient book uh, may we be men who who offset that by regularly thanking uh, our pastors encouraging them letting them know that we expect nothing less but that the word would be consistently proclaimed and applied to our lives and that they wouldn't just leave us on our own to apply it, but that they would actually follow it up with that expectation that we are and that they would not be hesitant to rebuke and to exhort and to reprove us. May we be men who are humble and ready to receive those things that we might walk more like Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.